I just feel like Emma Thompson probably read that script and was like, no, 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 this is what we're doing. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. This episode, we watched Love Actually for the thousandth time and asked each other and our friend, Bastien Yambi, are the holidays sexy? Layla, do you have a 2021 binge and cringe? Why, yes, I do. I mean, for this episode, since it's the last one of 2021, we decided not just to binge and cringe, but really to think hard about all of the binging and cringing that there was to happen over the past year. Uh, I think I'm going to start on a positive note with my binge and say that I cannot recommend enough people seeking out the show We Are Lady Parts, uh, which is a little hard to find because it's on Peacock. I did a free subscription uh, in order to watch this show, and I think I binged it in a previous episode. But just to reiterate, it is about uh, a female, all-female, all-Muslim punk band in the UK. It's a representation like you've never seen it before. It's funny. It's uh, sexy. It also deals with expectations and turning them on their head. And I have never seen a show that balances uh, sort of the camp and heightened reality with getting deep into personal heartstrings as well. And I just, every episode, there was something surprising. So uh, it's it's one of those shows you can binge in a day. Everyone should do it. I will say that it was very hard to come up with a binge of the year. We I watched a lot of TV this year in pandemic times, and uh, I almost went with Reservation Dogs which was another incredible show, also breakthrough uh, representation. And then I also hesitated, and maybe my second runner-up would be this final season of Insecure, which isn't done yet, but what pressure to to close out a show like Insecure and, and Issa Rae is coming through every week. I'm, I'm loving every episode, and I feel like the show's only getting better and better. Lori, should we do your binge of the year? Absolutely. Well, plus one to everything you just shared And I actually had to go back as well, because like you, I have watched so much TV this year. um, And really throughout the pandemic, it's been a lifeline for me in terms of making sure that I stabilize my mood. And on that note, my overall 2021 binge is going to be for BoJack Horseman, the series finale. I really, what put this over the edge for me was the depiction of depression. And without ruining anything or giving away any spoilers. Um, I just thought that they really did right by their female characters, especially. And I also just really love watching cartoon animals be human-like. It's a great, really smart show. My runner's up. I'm also going to put Reservation Dogs in there. So good. I also enjoyed Love Life, especially the most recent season with William Jackson Harper and Jessica Williams. I want to shout out Search Party just because I feel like I'm probably the absolute target demographic with it being a dark millennial comedy. And Curb Your Enthusiasm. Man, that show keeps going on and it reliably makes me cackle. So shout out to Larry David. Um, I appreciate you. 
I also want to give a multimedia shout out. Uh, So not only TV shows, but my favorite newsletter this year has emerged to be a newsletter called Today in Tabs. I really want to recommend it, especially if you are part of the media or think about media a lot in any sort of meta way as you consume it. And a few podcasts that I enjoyed this year, um, Dead Eyes, Heavyweight, Philosophize This, and Sway. My girl Kara keeps it so real, and I can only aspire to put so much fear in the boots of powerful men as Kara does. I also want to plug a forthcoming podcast. It's not even out yet, but we're really looking forward to Angry Africans, um, which will be airing in 2022. And lastly, I want to shout out my true 2021 binge, Therapy. It works for me, and I cannot recommend it enough. Um, If you can only binge one thing next year, may it be therapy. Wow. Hats off to that uh, genre bending uh, (laughs) binge list. (laughs) I'm going to re-listen to our own podcast to write down all the things that you've been binging. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we can't all be positive today. So do you also have a cringe of the year, Layla? I do. And at the risk of being too on the nose or at the risk of uh, cringe not being nearly severe enough to to classify my pick, I'm going to have to go with the January 6th insurrection and uh, the storming of the capital of the United States of America by an angry mob of Trump supporters. I have a lot of trouble with the passing of time processing the fact that that was this year. We're not done with 2021. So much has happened in 2021. We've watched so much television, but also the world has changed in so many ways. And despite the fact that uh, Mark Meadows, uh, the former president's final chief of staff, and his text messages have been in the news lately, and we've really gotten to see the back and forth between uh, the inside circle of the of the Trump regime, the Trump children acting like the Roy family on succession, the uh, the Fox News anchors who might as well be on paid staff at the White House, all all mixing and mingling. I mean, that's why we're talking about this again. And so I guess I'm cringing at the the fact that that this isn't an even bigger deal, that the fact that we have gone on, that life has gone on and, and the world has has continued uh, at a normal pace with only the occasional burst of liberal media saying, hey, they stormed the Capitol. (laughs) And so few consequences for the actual people who led an insurrection. So I know I'm preaching to the choir. I can't imagine there's somebody listening to our podcast who who disagrees. Uh, But I think sometimes you just have to state the obvious and the cringe of the year has has got to be the deterioration of democracy uh, as evidenced by uh, the recent news cycle focusing on text messages and not on convictions. Hell yeah. Could not agree more. Ugh, it's so frustrating. And my cringe of the year is going to be similar in the sense that Uh, It's also widely discussed in the media, but still somehow I feel not widely discussed enough. (laughs) Uh, But my cringe for the year is performative wokeness. And I don't mean this in the way that the far right means it. I mean it in a way that is inclusive of the Karens and the TERFs of the world. But all the people who pretend that their politics are left, are progressive, or even liberal 
but then actually end up bringing a lot of racist, hetero-capitalist, patriarchal values into leftist movement spaces. And I really feel like they do so much damage to the building of the world that I'm trying to see. And for me, you know, one thing that COVID did is it upended for me this idea that I can control everything, even if Zoom makes it seem like I can have a perfectly manicured little box that the world sees of me. I also know that this really isn't true and that's not the real me. And so my feeling is that we are in the apocalyptic end times. Folks might as well just be themselves and drop the facade. And despite this, I feel like it should be obvious, but some people have instead used this time of confusion and despair to double down and capitalize on people's negative feelings to build their online personal brands and pretend to be things that they're not. You know, one really disgusting example that's on my mind from the past couple of days, Sean King you know, has always been someone who uses his platform for really nebulous (laughs) ends. Um, He recently had a terrible family tragedy. His daughter was hit by a car and suffered brain damage. And he shared this update with his followers in a note. And in the same breath that he shared that update, he also included an update about a sale on hoodies in his merch store and was like hawking merch for that, you know, so that people can wear their like progressive slogans. So in my mind, these Karens and these Terps are just another side of the performative wokeness coin. And that's not what we need if we're going to make true strides to liberation. And as Arundhati Roy said, if we're going to you know, make this pandemic into a portal, we need folks to bring their authentic selves. So you heard it from me, no more pretending in 2022, authenticity only. And please drop the performative wokeness. And I say that from the left. Thank you. Oh, I love that authenticity only. Uh, It would make good merch, but it might be hypocritical to use that now. (laughs) Layla. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think I I hear your call to action and I just want to repeat back. uh, Stop reposting Sean King. I don't understand. This has been echoed across the Internet by all the smart people. And yet still popping up. He might have catchy quotes, but just stop. Please let 2022 be the end of Sean King's career in quote unquote organizing. Thank you. Yeah. And I know uh, this This is a little unscripted. We'd plan to share our binges and cringes, but I have to say my appreciation for the year uh, has got to be the community that has built up around this podcast. I so appreciate you, Lori, the, the levels that we've taken our friendship to in creating this podcast out of love and 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 frustration. And I've so appreciated having a place to channel the, the frustration and the energy and having such a, an engaged partner to come back and forth with in these times when it can feel futile and just really so appreciate everyone and appreciate the patrons, our our friends, family, and uh, listeners who have not just subscribed and help us to amplify this, this passion project, but really subscribed financially. It means so much to us and it has kept us going. And uh, it really, the supporters have, have helped us to bring up the audio quality, keep going, put out episodes regularly, think bigger and bolder about the guests that we invite and the topics that we tackle. So I just want to say it's end times, but I'm still very appreciative of some of the things that grow out of end times. Oh, I love that, Leila. You got me over here tearing up. I feel the exact same way this 
podcast has been a lifeline. It's been so entertaining and it's helped build community from the guests that we bring to the patrons that we've been able to connect with. So here's to a 2022 with lots more of that and would love to do more live events and the work. So please do check out our Patreon if you haven't already. It's a great way to support the show. And speaking of all of the touchy feels, it is the holiday season. And that is what today's episode is about. When we were thinking about what we wanted to do for the holidays, we thought, what better way to tackle the ways in which media covers the holiday season than to watch Love Actually? And I'm pretty sure everyone has heard of this movie, but just in case you haven't, Love Actually is that soapy movie from the early aughts, which happens to fit every single possible holiday-related sex and romance storyline into one approximately 90-minute movie. Love Actually actually has it all. There are stories about marriage, cheating, money and power, friendship, threesomes, and even softer topics like crushes and male friendship. It also covers grief and cultural differences, including the way sex and sexuality are viewed differently in the US and the UK. Truly a smorgasbord. It really is. And that last topic was perfect for us. It was a great entry point. Not only has this week's guest, Bassi Nyambi, seen the movie Love actually dozens of times, but she also recently relocated from New York City to London. She just went off to grad school in the UK, and we caught her on her first visit back to New York City. She was staying with me in New York City, so we had to split up for this episode. I was in a closet. (laughs) She was um, in my office, and we made it work, and we hope Hope you can um, enjoy because we definitely had a blast recording this. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Bassi, an expert in all things dating, multicultural differences, and love actually. Welcome to our special holiday episode of Cringe Watchers. Bassi, we are so excited to have you on the show. Hello there. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for letting me join this conversation. I feel like we're very jet set catching you on a layover. Well, today we are talking about everyone's favorite holiday movie, Love Actually. Is it actually everyone's favorite (laughs) holiday movie? (laughs) Question number one. (laughs) Why has this movie not been properly called out? We don't know. Great feminists, wonderful feminists have attempted to dissect all of the ways in which this movie really fails on so many levels to be properly feminist, probably fails the Bechdel test. It is not really, I would say, a woke movie in any sense of the word. Yet, I can also attest to the fact that this is a deeply beloved movie that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And I don't know about you, but how many times do you think each of you has seen Love Actually? Because despite decrying it all the time, I I still manage to watch it maybe once a holiday season. Yeah, I would say in my 20s, I'd probably seen it at least 20 times. And now, yeah, there's at least an annual viewing. (laughs) Inadvertent. There was definitely a time in college when my roommate and I could probably quote like the entire movie. I've seen it too many times at this point, I think. Well, this is the culmination of all of those hours of watching, y'all. We actually get a chance to share. It's paid off. Yeah. It's paid off. Yeah. Mama, we made it. <laughs> you scoffed at me watching Love Actually on repeat. Now look at us. 
<laughs> I'm excited to get into it with you, Bassi, because you have the fresh perspective of an American abroad having recently relocated to London. And so I think uh, there there might be a new lens you can apply to this very British rom-com. Yes. You know, being in the London dating scene has definitely been very interesting and I think has given me a different perspective on just British men and dating. It just puts a, a sheds a new light on love actually and what is normal in um, <laughs> in British society and British culture when it comes to love and, and dating. One of my first questions is, is London as white as love actually portrays? No, it's definitely not. <laughs> it is definitely not. I would say that it's a very like mixed culture, maybe even more so, you know, living here and having lived here in New York, which is a very diverse city. Like I would say that even more so in London, it's also diverse, but then it's also very integrated. And so you see so many different cultures living next to each other and commingling. What I would say is that I'm not sure how integrated the dating culture is. So I, you know, that's something I'm newly kind of coming to and exploring as someone who's dated many a white man in my life. <laughs> it's definitely not, London's not as white as uh, love actually would portray. Um, it's an incredibly diverse place. So that's fascinating. Since you teased it, what are the biggest cultural differences that you've noticed in, in dating oh, in particular? Girl. I would say that Americans, we do tend to be very direct. And the British are like, they're very proper. When you ask for what you want, they're a bit like, oh, you know, clutching their pearls a little bit. Conversely, you know, they kind of beat around the bush in terms of like asking for the things that they want and we're asking you out. And and so that's been very interesting and different. I will say the other difference that I found, at least in comparison between New York specifically and London, is in New York, you know, we're a bit, it's like... Um, Neverland, you know, people just never want to never, never want to grow up. Um, and I think in London, there's much more of a tendency and culture around, like looking for your person and dating um, a bit more intentionally. Interesting. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, like, I'm also curious if people like objectify you as an American girl in particular. Yeah, no, that definitely I mean, do you know how many times I've heard um, how much someone <laughs> likes my accent? Like, it's literally every day. <laughs> so, and it's not just for men, like, small children oh. will say it to me. Like, it's just like everybody. Also, they'll say things like, like, it's not like nasally, or it's not like some type of specific type of American accent. Um, because I think what's portrayed in the media is like a very, you know, either valley girl type of accent or someone from... A particular part of American culture. I think what people think of America, they think of like the extremes within not only our accent, but then within our culture. People are always pleasantly surprised that I sound like a normal human. I think that's like a good segue into one of the many storylines that are explored in the movie Love Actually. But there is a storyline with bloke named Colin, uh, played by the actor Chris Marshall. 
And he is determined. He has decided that his romantic troubles will melt away if he can only get to America. Um, so he's British and he gets on a plane and he says bye to his friends. And he's just like, I'm going to go get laid in America. And of course, um, for all of us who have watched this movie many times, we know that he does get laid and well laid by some of the <laughs> most conventionally attractive women, including I think Denise Richards and just like lots of hot, beautiful women who are all over him. And he's vindicated in his decision. But I'm curious, um, for actually for both of you, do you feel like this storyline in particular, like taps into some real cultural differences between the two places? The movie in general is a very heteronormative like film, obviously. And so they're picking up on what it's like to be in heterosexual relationships, but then also very specifically white heteronormative relationships. So I would say that that Yes, there is a difference in terms I've seen in terms of like directness of American women and stuff like that. I think that that is something that is relatively true. But I mean, let come on now. Like Colin. <laughs> no. I mean, I think it's a caricature. They, they make the women seem very dumb and very easy. Uh, but I do think that there is something to the reverse of what you were talking about earlier, Bassey, where an accent can go a very long way. And there, there is no doubt that Americans fetishize a British accent. And I think the, the his whole plan to come to the U.S. reminded me of an interview I saw once with Colin Farrell, who's Irish, and uh, was on that show Dinner for Five that John Favreau used to host. I don't know if you ever saw that show, but it was like an intimate dinner. And they had great outtakes. And he, in a very candid way, was just talking about how he would clean up when he first came to America, just go to a bar, open his mouth, say one sentence in his accent, and take a woman home. And I'm not sure it's that easy for the whole world if you're not Colin Farrell. Yeah, he's incredibly good looking. So <laughs> yes, yes. And also the swagger of just opening his mouth, right? <laughs> the accent. Right. But I think there's there is a nugget of truth to that caricature. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And yeah, it does portray American women as being like super, yeah, unintelligent, but like, and then they go to a very specific part of America, where he goes to Wisconsin, if I'm correct. And you know, it's just like, I could just go to any bar in America and just like hit, throw a rock and there's a beautiful woman in a random bar in Wisconsin. And like, who wants you know, me? <laughs> who wants, who wants, me? It's who like, wants to have a threesome with me? <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, if we know what, like, uh, as someone who, I mean, I grew up in Virginia mainly. And if you go to like, you're in a random part of town to a random bar, that's not some fancy looking place. The, uh, the chances that there's going to be, you know, that type of demographic of women that come into this bar is very low. I mean, obviously, like you said, Layla, like it is a caricature, not only of what we per- how we perceive the British accent and like, you know, our attraction to it. But it's also like a caricature of women in America, both in the negative and in the positive. If they want to say that there's just attractive American women floating around everywhere, then I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, but I, to your point, I'm sure that the, the women of Wisconsin are not flattered by this portrayal. <laughs> I feel like they're not. <laughs> I don't think so. The people of the Midwest tend to come off poorly in film in general. And, you know, that's reminding me that, you know, Richard Curtis, who wrote this film, and I think this may have been his directorial debut. He typically writes films, but he wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral. He's written some amazing rom-coms that 
maybe when he was younger, he was slightly more in touch with, or I know I've, I've read interviews that Four Weddings and a Funeral was based on his own experience going to many British weddings. So really building off of true life experience. This film, to me, later in his career, feels a little unhinged and completely based on stereotypes. There are so many characters, and I can't believe that he's he's digging into any real world experience when he's thinking about a Brit flying to Wisconsin and just getting laid. It's a weird old man's caricature of what the US could be like. It is. And this movie did kind of create the blueprint for a lot of holiday movies that we see, you know, coming out today, where it is just sort of a mishmash of every different kind of storyline. You know, they want to touch on certain themes, like there's you know, maybe a character arc where someone has their heart broken or they're cheated on and there's redemption. Um, or even I'm thinking about not necessarily holiday movies, but movies that are like Valentine's Day movie or New Year movie, where it's just every actor that they could get, <laughs> just throwing them onto the screen and the writing doesn't really matter that much. But the point is that, the you know, we're hitting all the demographics that we need to hit because these people are just like watchable to a number of audience members. And so we're just going to go for it. And it feels like Love Actually was the beginning of that kind of movie in some way, which kind of makes me want to ask you both, like, our next question, like, why do you think it did hit such a nerve? Like, why do we keep watching this movie when it is so kind of outlandish and caricaturish and almost soapy? (laughs) And it doesn't portray women that kindly. And it's so white and heteronormative. Like, what keeps us coming back? I don't know. It's like a sampler platter at a at a restaurant. Like you know, it's not going to be good, but there's something for everyone. And I think of holiday movies as the kind of movies where you're sitting around, maybe multiple generations. You all have to agree on something. I feel as though this is the sort of movie I don't watch on my own. I watch if a group of people are trying to decide what should we watch, and it's semi dependable. And also, just thinking about when this movie was made, right? I mean, it was made what in the early two thousands. It's got some of the most beloved British actors in it, you know. I mean, Alan Rickman, who, you know, my my voice twin, as I like to say, he has got a, he's got an amazing voice, and like, I mean, you have Emma Thompson, like you have all these incredible actors in it, and so I think that like, you know, like you were saying, Laurie, this being the bl- blueprint for a lot of similar movies that came after it that haven't really um, captured whatever magic was in this <laughs> was in this movie um, that keeps us coming back to it. I don't know what it is about this movie because it's like, I don't relate to it in any way. Like there's not one storyline that I relate to. So it's interesting because when if you pick it apart, no one storyline holds up the Kira Knightley storyline of, of Juliet and Mark and Peter that has become a meme that has become uh, an iconic image in the world. And I think when I first saw the film was maybe I might have been rooting for Mark. And now when I rewatch the film, he comes off as a stalker. And I'm wondering how that's held up for you guys. I mean, for me, I'm thinking about Peter. I'm thinking about Chiwetel Ejiofor, the only black character in this whole movie. (laughs) Okay. Like one, an amazing actor having a very truncated storyline. Like you really don't know anything about him other than the fact that he's got this very beautiful, thin wife who is sought after by his best friend. And he's just kind of like 
off just living his best life, like totally oblivious. <laughs> and I found a that part of it specifically, like so problematic that they didn't even attempt to explore him and even his friendship with this other dude who's going after his wife, like even that part of it, I would love to have just gotten a little bit more out of that. None of it made sense to me. Yeah, I think, you know, to your question, Layla, about does it resonate and does it hold up to the test of time? Like, what's weird about this movie is I actually identify with different characters at different times in my life. Um, like, I think when I was younger, yeah, definitely, I saw the more straightforward romantic storylines, for example, the prime minister and, you know, played by Hugh Grant and Natalie, um, played by Martine McCutcheon, as, you know, maybe the most uh, classically romantic storyline and with with Colin Firth's storyline maybe coming a close second. But, you know, now as a person in my mid-30s, I find some of the more maybe seemingly random or complicated storylines, probably the most compelling. So like Laura Linney's story about just having, you know, uh, an emotionally or difficult brother and and having that really be a, a huge focus for her that, that makes it really difficult, if not impossible, um, to pursue a romantic life. Like, I actually think that's a really interesting storyline to include and, you know, would have loved to see it maybe be a little bit less annoying and could she not just put the phone away for two seconds um, I know. but still like that storyline maybe resonates a bit more just as someone now in my 30s who's like juggling a lot of different priorities right and maybe that's part of the film staying power is like how multi-generational it is and like to your point Layla there's maybe even if it's small or even if it's compromised or problematic like someone can find something in everything here. Yeah, I I remember watching it for the first time. It's hard to peel off the layers of having seen it many times. But I do remember being very into Kira Knightley. I think this was right after Bend It Like Beckham, which I adored. And so I would watch anything she was in. And I think when I first saw it, I was embarrassed for Mark to have Juliet see the video he took of her wedding and embarrassed for him to be revealing his crush. And I rewatched that scene ahead of talking to the two of you and found it maybe the most cringy in the whole film that he fucked up her whole wedding video with these super zoomed in really creepy shots of her. But I also remember from day one, always hating the Colin Firth storyline because they can't speak the same language. So it's interesting to me that that was was uh, romantic at first to you, because I think Colin Firth is always I think for all these actors. I'm riding on their reputation and my affection for them from other films. And I'm letting that drag me into this film where it's like, I love Colin Firth from Pride and Prejudice and Bridget Jones. And now I'm in this film, I'm wanting him to be dreamy. And he's really a drip. I actually found for me, the storyline with Alan Rickman's character and Emma Thompson, the most real because it is like, talking about two people who have clearly been in this long-term relationship. They have a family and it's touching on, you know, cheating in a very real way. And it's touching on being in a long-term relationship and not feeling seen anymore. And the real damage that can happen when people are no longer really seeing each other. And so I thought for me, I mean, there was not, there was, there was nothing really in that, that I was rooting for 
or against, of course, I was like, I mean, you know, I was like, don't do it. <laughs> like this, this chicken hole at your work, at work is, she's a no for me. <laughs> but <laughs> like, but I was, I was definitely just, you know, I was sad for both of them. I was sad for um, Emma Thompson's character. Like that scene when she's in her room after he has, she thought he was, she was going to get the, the necklace and he's given her this um, Joni Mitchell album instead and I was like I mean first a I would take that album any day because I love Joni Mitchell <laughs> and um but like watching her be in that room crying at while she's listening to this beautiful tragic album that was probably one of the few scenes that for me felt so real even though I can't relate to it I I felt something there that was just very tangible it's so true they're definitely the most real do you think they had time-wise the most airtime or you think it's just they're such good actors that that really did feel like the most fleshed out thread of the whole film i think it was both because they were a pretty central couple all the characters are sort of tangentially connected but them as a couple feels like they might be connected to the most people yeah i just think emma thompson's like a freaking amazing actress and so she nailed that scene it's it's so classic and like the Joni mitchell meta drama oh hell yeah i just feel like emma thompson probably read that script and was like no 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 this is what we're doing okay <laughs> like I, she's I like say she... less <laughs> i got yeah this. exactly we haven't talked about the the political romance uh, workplace romance and workplace harassment of the prime minister the american president and the quote-unquote uh chubby or uh plumpy oh, secretary plumpy. or aide <laughs> Did you find her thighs massive? I was uh, baffled baffled by that. And I know I'm not the first. I think it's been written about before. <laughs> right. And I think obviously, I mean, it was interesting because obviously like, you know, the prime minister, Hugh Grant's character is just like, would we call her chubby? Like he doesn't see it, um, which I guess he's supposed to be like us in terms of like, we're all supposed to be, you know, in on this thing with him and kind of confused by everyone else seeing something that we don't see. But yeah, it didn't really, it didn't really make that much sense. Um, but I think also um, there was clear sort of parallels that I think they were trying to make between, like I think Clinton and you know and that whole stuff with Monica Lewinsky and that like basically Billy Bob Thornton's character was supposed to be sort of like a I don't know if we can say hypersexualized maybe same sexualized like version of what the Clinton um, president is sort of be a sort of caricature of him as well. Yeah, it's interesting, because in some ways, that evil American president that Billy Bob plays really morally lets the Hugh Grant character off the hook for hooking up with his aide where they have that huge power dynamic, because at least he's not the American president cornering her. And we don't know what happened behind closed doors. But it makes the Hugh Grant character this odd sort of savior, even though he is still sort of the Clinton in this scenario. Yeah. And so does the gaslighting about her weight, because it like erodes her sense of autonomy and contributes to this idea that she should be lucky to have the attention of such a powerful man. Yeah. And I think also like, you know, Hugh Grant's character, especially after that scene where um, the American president corners Natalie and you know, um, before that, Hugh Grant was prepared to sort of concede to whatever the Americans wanted to do politically. And then after, you know, seeing this, um, this scene, 
with the American president and Natalie, he has this press conference where he like, you know, finds his courage, finds his voice and, you know, is the sort of savior of England. And it was further sort of adding to this narrative that like the British are this underdog, the prime minister is this underdog to be rooted for. And so, you know, anything he does from then on is like, he's the sort of, um, beloved character or lovable type of character that we should be, you know, on his side. It was oddly patriotic, that little uh, part where Hugh Grant stands up to Billy Bob. <laughs> Very odd, but because I don't, you know, I mean, Americans, I think we tend to be a little bit more into the patriotism thing than um, than the British. So that was a very, that was a very interesting Interesting scene. Can we talk about Colin Firth's writing retreat? Yes, please. Do you guys believe in love that can transcend language barriers? Could you fall for someone if you couldn't communicate? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I, for, for me, I'm like, I don't know what he's saying. He could be telling me, you know, that I need to stay in the kitchen. and But it sounds beautiful. But I have no idea. Honestly, I think the bigger problem with their relationship is that she works for him, not necessarily the language barrier. Like, okay, that is hard, um, but it looks like he's willing to learn Portuguese and she's willing to learn English. And so like great for them. But the fact that, you know, she's poor and, you know, his love is the thing that's going to like lift her out of poverty just makes for a really cringy, unequal power dynamic that, also is transcendable, but needs to be discussed and acknowledged in order to get there, I think, at an interpersonal level. So that was like my biggest cringe. But like I said, growing up, um, I did, you know, have a lot of internalized, you know, ideas about what, about traditional romance. And so I think some of that like savior dynamic was like, I read it as as sweet because like he could be a mean employer to her but instead he falls in love with her and like isn't that cool um but obviously like upon rewatch and like reading that has gone away for me over time (laughs) and i think that there's an element too of like at the very beginning of the film right he's in a relationship with someone who cheats on him with his brother right and so and he goes off to this you know to have his alone time and and write and I do think that there, it is tapping into this sort of like, oh, he's been through something really difficult and um, you you do want him to find love because he thought maybe he had it and then like was cheated on horribly. And so some of that does play into what we're allowing to sort of pass. Totally. So he finds himself like an easy, loyal, poor who wouldn't dream of cheating on him because she has like no other options. I think they even make a joke about that at the end of the movie where she's like, oh, I think Jamie has handsome friends that he didn't tell me about, huh? And it's like, yeah, girl, (laughs) there's other fish in the sea. (laughs) Listen, I was thinking, I think now, especially living abroad, I'm like, I see that character. I'm like, get your green card, girl, because I'm out here (laughs) looking for for an EU citizen myself. (laughs) Hey, respect the hustle. (laughs) We'll amplify that search for you with this podcast. (laughs) Please. Your point, Bassie, that we're seeing this all through the lens of the mopey guy, I think is maybe a cross-cutting theme in all of these stories where we're seeing even the little kid with the crush, we're only seeing him 
And I think the only other black character in the whole film is the oh, little right. girl he's got a crush on who we only see at the very end. We we right. see the whole Mark Juliet framework through Mark's pining, not through Juliet receiving unwanted advances from her husband's best friend from someone who like upended their whole wedding i hate when movies do that like if somebody planned a musical number in the middle of my wedding <laughs> i'd be so pissed yeah and the colin firth we see we don't know what kind of shitty boyfriend he was before someone ended up cheating on him he clearly is a mopey self-important writer you know maybe that relationship was already over and we we just see a lot of woe is me men in this film even Alan Rickman is feeling, you know, unseen at home and turns to his secretary. Such a good point. And speaking of woe is me men, there are like two pairings that we haven't touched on today. And I would dare say they are alternately the most and least romantic of the entire movie. So the first is Billy Mack and his manager, Joe. And the second is no last name, John and Judy, who are the nude scene blockers who provide like a bit of comic relief throughout the movie. And so I'm just curious, like how either of those pairings resonated with either of you. I mean, yeah, I found Judy and John, I found theirs was probably the most like normal relationship. It's like, okay, two people who've gotten to know each other sexually, maybe not like in a, you know, obviously it's for a film, but like they've got to know each other, but you know, more physically. And then they were like, There's, there might be something to this person. That felt like the most, like the thing I could resonate with, <laughs> you, know, you know, the most. I think because it's intentionally supposed to be sort of cringy, like these two people in this very compromising, you know, role. And like that is all, apparently, that's all their characters are blocking for is the sex scene, you know, finding like, oh, we're, we're doing this thing and we're actually like having a conversation and getting to know each other as we're doing this. And maybe we do. Oh, they're nice. They're interesting. That was actually probably the most normal of all of the various relationships um, that we see in this movie. Yeah, I guess if there's a couple to root for, that might be the couple to root for. I, I really love Martin Freeman. He always brings the right amount of comedy to this kind of uh, impossibly British scenario. <laughs> Totally. And I hate to be all like feminist shrill about this, but they are also the couple who is most proficient in the language of consent uh, as a result of their entire situation. And so they started with that premise. And guess what? Rom-com world. They also fell in love and became a very healthy, apparently uh thriving couple so take what lesson what feminist lesson from that that you will and they didn't even need an intimacy coordinator the recurring theme on this podcast <laughs> right apparently not but what about billy mack and joe are you saying that that's the most or the least romantic couple Lori? <laughs> i was arguing that maybe they were the least um but i think it could be argued the other way i would love to hear that uh argument laid out i do think Okay, now stay with me here. I do think that there was something very beautiful about like this very obviously problematic, like spoiled, you know, aging rock star who has had all the things, said some of the craziest things. I mean, like they say problem he says problematic things about like Britney Spears, about like random people in this film, you know, for him to have all these things in front of him. And then later it's like well, actually, there's only one person who's been, you know, true to me, and that was my manager. Like, I think there's something really, there is something to that, for sure. Totally. 
And you know what? Friendship can be romantic. So I take back my statement. I think their um, relationship is beautiful. And I'm glad that even though it was among two problematic men, I'm glad that like friendship is represented in this film as something deserving of like attention and inclusion in a discussion about love. Yeah. And also it's like they, again, we've talked about this being a very heteronormative film. And I do think I mean, they continue, even in that friendship, to tap into that because neither of them wants to seem too, you know, at the end when they're when they're hugging and they don't want to seem too, like, homosexual. There's something like, well, you don't want to do that, but we're going to kind of, like, tentatively, begrudgingly give each other a awkward hug and talk about our platonic love for each other. Um, so they were tr- trying to, like, let's not toe that line. But there was something still to that. Um, for sure, and in representing friendship as something to be cherished and that there is love. Um, There can be love between two men, whether that's romantically or platonically. Exactly. In place of a formal ad this episode, we want to end the year with a plug for donating to your local abortion fund. Abortion funds are grassroots organizations often run by volunteers who work to remove financial and logistical barriers to abortion access. Some funds work with clinics directly to help pay for your abortion. Some of them offer support to pay for transportation, childcare, translation services, doula services, or somewhere to stay if you have to travel to get your abortion. You can find your local abortion fund by visiting the National Network of Abortion Funds website at abortionfunds.org slash need dash abortion. With abortion rights under attack at the federal level and in many states, we encourage you to take action now, today in fact, to support people's ability to access care. As always, thank you for your consideration. Bassy for this holiday special, we, we, we're shaking up the rapid fire and uh, we have a few holiday themed questions that are for all three of us to fill in the blanks. The first question for all of us is what kind of holiday content are you binging? This is a tough one. So every holiday I have a tendency to just watch like all the really cringy, problematic, um, like Hallmark Channel holiday movies. That's like every movie's a is like someone from the big city goes to a small town and you know they were once jaded and then they fall in love with a local carpenter and you know stay in the town forever and live happily after ever after that's what i have a tendency to binge during the holiday season i mean tried and true Lori, have you been uh, holiday <laughs> binging you know what ever since the show seinfeld came to netflix i kind of will throw it on sometimes while i'm cleaning up around the house or just something you know to bring me, you know, call me down at night. And I just got to the Festivus episode. (laughs) I forgot how well written this season, like the later seasons of Seinfeld are like, they're pretty kooky and enjoyable. And it always surprises me that the show became so mainstream and popular because it's a really weird show. And the Festivus episode is kind of about like, family abuse in a way, but they really successfully make it funny. So I recommend rewatching that episode. And obviously, it's not a traditional holiday episode. But I do think it scratches a really good itch this time of year. 
What about you, Layla? I also in the semi-traditional route. I the other night, unplanned, had one of my best friends from college over, and she and Chris and I ordered pizza and watched Batman Returns, which I forgot was so holiday in theme. It takes place all around December in Gotham, and there's a lot of you know, it's it's Michelle Pfeiffer as as Catwoman and Danny DeVito as the Penguin. There's a lot of holiday uh, theme. Uh, that sort of pimped out in caricature, Tim Burton style. And so I, I highly recommend it as, uh, you know, edging up on Die Hard as that other movie that is a non-holiday holiday movie. Love it. And also a very sexy movie. I mean, I'm pretty sure Michelle Pfeiffer inspired a generation with that costume. Oh, definitely. Oh, she was probably one of the best cat women, for sure. I would agree. The competition is a little unfair there. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, but... <laughs> I've given her her flowers. Okay. <laughs> okay. So our next holiday-themed cringe fire question is what's something that you're finding cringy about the holidays? For me, uh, being the last single woman standing in my family, uh, going home for the holidays and um, everyone gets a, a couple's gift. That's oh, what's happening ooh. in my house. And uh, <laughs> yikes. I'll take it. I mean, I don't know what I'm getting this year, considering um, I'm obviously not a couple. But yeah, that's probably been, I think, is now now the, the cringiest part of the holidays Oof. for me. Half a sweater, <laughs> one glove. <laughs> I have to say that uh, the, the domination, the hegemony of Christmas is pretty cringy every year. Uh, I, I've been reading... Uh, articles lately with uh, there, there seem to be a series of articles of Jewish friends reposting like, why do our kids have to lie to other kids about the existence of Santa why do our kids have to have uh, Christmas sort of thrust upon them uh, but I also uh, you know one of my favorite holidays of the year is the the is Yalda or the the winter solstice that that versions celebrate and uh, Christmas doesn't quite overshine it but it's it's the first day of winter so 21st and and you often don't get a chance to it's hard to host a party and have people come over when Christmas is is everywhere totally and I mean the fact that Hanukkah came early this year people just did not give a fuck I was like it's over you know people are like wish me happy holidays I was like it was two weeks ago they're like oh well too bad (laughs) (laughs) like you missed it (laughs) the the holidays generic framework is such a sham my holiday cringe, and God help me, I hope that none of my partners, family members listen to my podcast, trying to hook up with my honey while there's so much family around. It's really tough, I gotta say. And not just kind of like the question of logistics, where to go, but also just psychologically, I find it really hard to get in the mood when I know that there's like someone down the hall who grew up with my partner or raised them. So that is my personal struggle. Struggle is real. I We're staying here for, for Christmas this year and I will not miss my mother-in-law's trundle bed. <laughs> okay, for a more positive question, what is the rom-com, the holiday rom-com that you want to see made? What's that plot line that we all need? Ooh, I think that really any movie where at the end like there isn't sort of a savior dynamic because I feel like that is rampant in all sort of rom-coms in general and holiday rom-coms explicitly but I would just love anything where you've just got a powerful woman who doesn't need a man and he's just trailing after her and she chooses to be with him I just think we need to see more powerful independent women who 
are not feeling like they have to be with someone, but they're choosing to be with them because they're on equal footing. I love that. I'm going to say there's already a dearth of Hanukkah movies, but I'm going to go for a subgenre. And I very rarely invoke my Black and Jewish identity, but I'm pulling out that card here. And I'm going to say Hollywood needs to get every cute, hot, Black and Jewish person in Hollywood, and there are many of them, together in one movie, and they need to make a movie that is a Hanukkah movie and is also featuring Black people. It is a Black holiday movie and a Hanukkah movie, and it needs to be called 8-Track, and it needs to be about a musician who is struggling to find love, (laughs) and he gets 8 tries, 8 Tinder dates, Okay, on, you guessed it, (laughs) a Jewish dating app. And if he does, then his Jewish mother will make him the mac and cheese that he so claims. We'll workshop it in post, but but you get the idea. What about you, Layla? I'm still reeling. I would totally watch 8-Track, and I was thinking of all the sequels, like 8-Ball, 8-Mile. That's amazing. To your point, Bassy, I find that the theme of almost all holiday movies is an ambitious woman whose lesson she needs to learn is that her ambition is killing her love life. So I would just like to see a movie where an ambitious woman is able to find love or be satisfied without love without learning that uh, having a career or a career minded mindset is uh, making her frigid, unattractive, unfuckable. And so the fuckable career woman, any plot line can be any holiday, but I uh, wouldn't, wouldn't mind one that sort of slips into the mainstream because the plot you described, Bassie, I think there's the reverse plot where it's not just a person from a city going to a small town. It's the person who's from the small town, has gone to pursue her career in the big city, forgotten who she is and all her values and needs to come home and homestead. Let's have her come home and realize, no, she made all the right decisions. <laughs> and she does not... And be taken yes. down a notch. <laughs> She's made all the right decisions. And the person for her might be in the city. Right. Exactly. She comes back home and she's like, wait, I, okay, I see yeah, why I exactly. Exactly. Confirming my decisions. Validation. It's, it can be called a validation or a validate. We'll workshop it alongside Ooh, a track. That's so good. <laughs> validate, vindicate... And the main character's name is Kate. (laughs) Okay, y'all, this is our last question for our holiday-themed cringe fire. Do you have any favorite sexy scenes from holiday movies or episodes of TV shows? I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this one. That's a great question. I think I wrote this question, but didn't have anything particular in mind. I will say that um, I recently came across a listicle ranking the Office Christmas party episodes and uh, they are very rewatchable. And there's some great uh, r- romantic and aromantic stuff that happens in them, um, including fun Jim and Pam storylines, storylines of uh, Michael's woes with love. Uh, so I'm not sure if those are sexy, but definitely watchable. It's hard for me to find most holiday films sexy in any way, just to kind of like turn it a little bit to something that was more about like, romantic and this is like romance in it or love depicted in a very different way but at the very end of home alone <laughs> when um kevin his character is at home and his mom comes into the door and just like the level of love that you see between those two people when they see each other for the first time after he's been home going through this whole ordeal and she's been on a bus with 
you know, random musicians. She's been in a truck, in the back of a truck. Like, just the love that you see between a mother and child at the end of that movie is just so pure and beautiful. And I could watch that scene over and over again is for me something just that really stays with me. I love that. I think similarly, I don't know if it's the sex so much as the overall romance. Um, A movie that is not without its problems, but I do want to shout out The Preacher's Wife, if only for the absolutely gorgeous (laughs) uh, pairing of Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston. And I mean, what could go wrong there? Once in a generation, smolder. Yes, precisely. (laughs) And that is it. We have completed our holiday cringe fire. Thank you, Bassie. It's so great to see you. And I would would not want to celebrate sexy holidays with anyone else. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm always interested to talk about just anything with the two of you. I've been so admiring your um, podcast and so really honored and excited to have joined you guys today. Love Actually, we're going to have to, I don't know if we succeeded in, you know, really interrogating it um, like other feminists have tried, but I'm definitely going to rewatch it with new eyes in my new London life. The group chat is ready. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, you are wonderful, Bassie. Thank you so, so much. I'm going to come upstairs now. (laughs) Thank you to our guest, Bassie Niambi. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. D.L. Dallas Angram created our theme song. You can find Siddhartha on Bandcamp and D.L. on SoundCloud. You can support the show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringewatchers. Subscribe today and get cool perks like a shout out on this very show or early access to episodes. You can also show your love by rating and reviewing the show. And follow us at cringewatchers on Instagram and Twitter. We'll be back on our regular every other Thursday schedule. The first episode of the new year will be January 20th. Thank you for cringe watching with us and see you in 2022.